0: Okay, so this is going to be an episode I did with UFC competitor, UFC two competitor Robert Lucarelli, and the UFC creator Art Davie, and uh, in this episode we talked about uh, Robert Lucarelli's experience in UFC two. He fought Orlando Viet. Now the fight itself wasn't originally on the VHS, but it kind of showed a replay of a uh, Viet escaping the headlock, and then uh, I think he finished Rob Robert with a kick kick to the head, and then some elbows that followed. And uh, so Robert talks about uh, this early experience of him coming into this event, you know, this No Holds Barred event. And later we're joined by uh, Art Davey and we go down a memory lane of the original UFC and uh, his experiences creating it and um, finding fighters and finding venues and so on. So a really interesting episode and uh, obviously it's a great honor to have uh, these two guys on the show and to kind of. Speak with Art about the early UFC. So, when you're doing these podcasts, it's amazing what kind of opportunities you have and the people you get to talk to. So, this is uh, Robert Lucarelli and Art Davy.
1: So, so we can kind of start while we're waiting for him. Um, <clears throat> if you want to introduce yourself to people that are watching this that may not know who you are.
2: Okay. Uh, I'm Robert Lucarelli. I fought in the UFC number two in 1994. Uh, I give thanks to Art Davey and Horian Gracie for giving me that opportunity. It was, you know, pretty new then. It was very scary. Uh, give you a little, you know, rundown on my origins. Uh, you know, wrestling, I started in 1972 at age six, uh, wrestled throughout high school in 1984, later in varsity wrestling, and went on to wrestle for USA Wrestling. And, uh, hey, there's Art. Hey, Art, how's it going? <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> Good to see you, Art. See All right. you. That's the man. That's the man that gave me the opportunity. And uh, I
3: remember you came from Schenectady, New York.
2: You got it—the the town that lights the world. It was you know Thomas Edison. That's right. Yeah.
3: Hey Bob, how how did we actually come together? Did Charlie Enzalone bring us together?
2: It wasn't Charlie that brought us together. Uh, there wasn't. You took an ad out in the Black Belt magazine. And uh, I replied to it. And then you contacted me. And I, I think Shamrock had broken his arm in Japan. And right. You, you were short on the card. Right. So I, I took it, you know, a short notice.
3: Oh, wow. I, I forgot about all those
2: ads that we were
3: running in black belts, inside karate, and inside kung fu. That's right. That's,
2: yeah.
1: The classic match.
2: Yep, yeah, and I sent you a videotape of some of my, you know, some of my fights and some newspaper clippings, and you gave me the opportunity.
3: Yeah, back in the day, I would
2: actually make selections
3: from videos. So if a guy was smart enough to put together a sexy video showing what he did, you know, that that's how you got in the door. Uh, other than that, you had to be like Oleg off, and you had to show up on my front door one morning. You know, and 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 I had to let you in.
2: Oh, yeah. I remember remember
3: that. that, uh, I remember that, you know, you were, I think, the fourth or the fifth fight that night. And that's when we did a 16 man tournament. Yeah, that was a huge
2: tournament. I remember that.
3: That was the bloodiest, roughest tournament. As I look back on the five years that I was involved in the UFC.
2: Yeah, I would have to say so. Yeah, we bled, you know, we bled for what the sport is today. And it's unfortunate a lot of you know, a lot of us are never mentioned with uh, the UFC anymore, you know. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Now, do you remember,
3: of course, the guy that you were matched up against?
2: Oh, yeah. Orlando Wheat, the world Muay Thai champion. Lupiny State
3: Orlando Wheat. I had gotten a call from Master Toddy. Right. And Master Toddy had been in England. He had come over to America and he was the w- well-recognized trainer of Muay Thai fighters, and of course, I didn't have a Muay Thai fighter. Well, Gerard G- 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 Gordeaux had trained in Muay Thai.
2: Right. You you built him a survive.
3: class's gym in Amsterdam. Okay. But 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 Veet had an incredible international reputation. So I remember when Toddy called me up. And I was really eager to get him in there. That was a really tough bout because, as you remember, he wasn't the biggest guy in the world. But talk about understanding how to make the leg kick
2: work. Right. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, now that- Rob, Robert, what did you think when he approached you to do this? I mean, obviously, you didn't know nobody knew what it was. What What were you thinking at the time?
2: Well, you know, I thought it was it was ideal for me because of my background. You know, I had you know been a wrestler uh, from 72 to 84 lettered in varsity wrestling. I went on to wrestle for USA wrestling. I did some Greco. I went on and uh, did some um, boxing, amateur boxing. I boxed with the Schenectady Boxing Club for a fella named Pep Casello. And Pep's an interesting character. You know, he uh, he had they called the call, they call him the Schenectady Iron Man. He was 98 and two as an amateur. And then he fought for the carnivals, taking on all comers. But that was mostly setups. He was sparring partner for Lou Ambers and champ of the world. Oh, Lou Serbo. Ambers, yeah. That's right. They had been with Al Weil and Charlie Goldman. Rocky Marciano's group had uh, Lou right. Ambers. yeah. And Pep had promoted the, fr- he tele- the first televised boxing match on WRGB. And he, he promoted professional wrestling and boxing. He had his own arena on Erie Boulevard in Schenectady. And he used to house fighters from around the country. And eventually, Pep turned me on to Chris Dundee. I was in Miami for a little while. And uh, Bo Jack and Vic Andrade, those guys were working with me. You know? Wow. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, in amateur boxing, I was the Adirondack heavyweight champion in 87. Um, I was the 1987 Empire State Games heavyweight boxing silver medalist. I lost to Ike Padilla. Ike had 150 fights all over the world. He lost to Michael Bett in the finals of the Golden Gloves. And um, I also um, won the Upstate New York amateur Championship in 91. That was the last time I was in the ring until, you know, I got back into the octagon and then I, I started fighting. I started fighting some more. I remember Bob that uh,
3: you were about 6'2 and about 240 pounds at the time.
2: You you got, you got that right. You remember.
3: Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I remember that you had both boxed and you had grappling so you know that was a that was the early combination that it was always great if I could find it, because I you know starting even in UFC two and three, the fighters started to cross train, and if right. you had a background in both already, you were ahead of the game.
2: Exactly, and that's that's kind of what I felt going into the fight. My my strategy was to take Orlando down to the ground, you know, but uh, you know his, he was tough to hold on to. He had a lot of Vaseline. He was going for the eyes. Great athlete. I take nothing away from him. You know, he he won fair and square that night, but, uh, you know, he was definitely slippery and tough to hold on to, you know.
3: Hey, Bob, now that I think about it, uh, I think the Vaseline was an issue. I, I think McCarthy was the referee for your bout.
2: You're right. He was.
3: And I think that one of the issues that night, after we took a look at everything, was how much Vaseline could a fighter use? And I think that Orlando Veet was greased up from his ankles to his head.
1: <laughs> he certainly was. <laughs> now who approached who? Did you approach Art or did he approach you about this?
2: Well he you know, after I sent in my information, he contacted me, he called me. Right. Yeah. And uh, he set it up and you know, flew me there first class. We stayed at the Marriott. I right. mean it was it was great the way he treated us, you know, he gave us an allowance every day go out and, you know, get what we wanted to eat. It was, it was fantastic, you know.
1: When you sent in your tape or whatever, did you – so you had a pretty good idea of what it was going to be at that point.
2: I, well, I, you know, I had an idea, but, again, no one's ever done anything like this before. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've done bouncing. I've had street fights before. So, you know, it was up, up that alley. I've had some pit fights you can see on YouTube. Um, you know, so I've had some experience, but no one really was sure what they were getting into, you know. So, no. you know, you didn't know. No. One of the things you told me, Art, I don't know I'm if you sorry. remember this, but Art says to me, and Hori and Gracie sat me down, and, uh, you know, the there's only two rules. You couldn't bite or you couldn't, you couldn't eye gouge. Right. And what Art says to me, he said, you know, if you're in the finals and if you think biting and eye gouging will get you the victory, go ahead and do it because you're only going to get a $1,000 fight. Do you remember that, Art? <laughs> I, you know, that's funny that you recall that, but you're right about that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's that's how gritty it was. I mean, you know, we've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> yeah. now, when
1: you get there, you know, what is it? What's it like when you get there before the event has started? Do you think were you thinking, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't do this," or did you? It was no big deal.
2: Well, you know, I was getting pretty excited. I mean, it was. I mean, it was pretty cool. Uh, Playboy magazine did an interview with me there, and then during yeah. the press conference, remember that? I mean, yes. During the press conference, it was, you know, by random draw who they picked, who you were going to fight. And it came down to me, Orlando Wheat, Hoist, Gracie, and Minoki Ichihara. So I didn't know. I thought possibly I was going to get uh, Hoist, you know, in the first round. And I was actually excited about possibly, you know, drawing Hoist. But, again, I drew I drew Orlando Wheat. But it was, it was down to us last four fighters at the end, I remember.
3: Well, I remember that uh, Minoki Ichihara had – Japanese journalists over from Tokyo covering because they had done a tremendous series on him as a big hero uh, in, in karate in Japan. And uh, uh, Bob is right about the fact that that was the first event that I didn't actually do the matchups and announce them on the, um, at the press conference. We actually used a, a drum. Uh, and I think Jim Brown was the one who was going to reach in to pull out the right. names. So it was wind up with a random draw so you wound up with Hoist versus Ichihara. and of course the Japanese were very upset the journalists because they were hoping that, I guess, given that Hoist had won UFC one, right, you know that maybe that I was trying or that the company was trying to early on eliminate Ichihara. It just happened to work out that way. Uh, uh, Remco Pardue was matched up against Alberto Leone, right, who had won who had won the Penjak Salat championship in Jakarta. The first European to ever do that. And I couldn't get him in the first UFC. I would have thought that, and if I was doing the matchups, that show on my own, I was thinking about Bob Lucarelli and Alberto Cerro Leone.
2: Oh, that would have been interesting.
3: That would have been about.
2: Yes, it would have. Wow.
1: Yeah. Do you guys remember, I mean, I know, Art, obviously you read the magazines after the first UFC, but uh, Robert... You know, when you're going, like I said, you wanted to play for this event. You probably didn't know much about the other people competing in it because back then all we had for resources were those magazines pretty much.
3: You know, that's really the the case. Bob is right about the fact that those guys were the early X-15 pilots experimenting with this event because the big problem was you were facing a stranger. You you might have read a little about it. You might have done it do a little homework, but by and large, you were going to be up against somebody that you were facing for the first time, and in that event, it was four rounds. So you order you know, to win this thing, you would have defeat four separate individuals whose style was brand new to you.
2: That's right. It was you know it, absolutely it was you know style versus style, which I really really missed that concept. And I you know I like this. I like when originally I remember being a big you know fan of um, you know pro wrestling. I remember in 1976, Anoki had uh, gotten an opportunity to fight Muhammad Ali. And uh, that was one of my inspirations, you know, to, you know, to cross train and to continue to train. Cause I didn't know, no one knew who would win, the boxer or the wrestler. But, but again, art took it to a whole new level. It was ridiculous with the rope breaks. I mean, it was, you know, no comparison to that, that event, but it, that kind of got me, you know, going and interested, but I, I hold, I love that whole style of versus style concept. Well, that
3: was the great inspiration for me, too, was 1976 in Tokyo. You've got, Minoki, you've got Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki. They were still juggling with the rules for that event one or two days before. And in the United States, Vince McMahon Sr. from the old WWF was the promoter doing a closed circuit. And he was hoping that that was going to be a big, a big success. And of course, the numbers on that were a disappointment. Ali only threw eight punches, right? And they had they they could they could find Inoki to basically the the, uh, the ground. He couldn't kick from a standing position. He fought the whole event, fifteen rounds, on his butt, right? Kicking from the ground. That.
2: It was a huge disaster. Yes, it was. You know, and uh, I I don't know why Inoki took that strategy, um, but maybe he was afraid to get hit by Muhammad. I don't know. What do you think, or well, wow. I think at the time that uh they were very concerned
3: that if there was grappling involved, the rules basically when they when they finally agreed on them is that once there was a clinch, the referee was going to separate them. They didn't want Ali to be taken to the ground right so uh you know uh Enoki wound up using a strategy where he was going to kick from the ground. Ali wound up getting phlebitis his he was kicked so much in the legs that he wound up getting a severe blood infection right that's right and uh you know he only threw eight punches the whole event it was a huge disaster when I did the UFC I had two things in mind number one I wanted to monetize the martial arts because nobody was making any money doing the martial arts if you were any good you went into TV or the movies sure so I wanted to make sure you guys would you know you you win fifty sixty thousand if you could win the event right but there was money at every level the second problem which the Ali and Noki bout pointed out was they couldn't agree on the rules so my idea was pancreation. There are no rules.
2: There are no rules, right. No
3: biting, no eye gouging were the only rules.
2: Right. It, it made it fair equal footing. You know, you could use what you know, and you don't have to worry about any stupid rope breaks or anything like that, you know. So that was now, great. Now, yeah. when
1: you in your, your video, was it because you saw stuff in the magazines from the first one?
2: I did. I did. I and. and are you addressing that question to me, Todd? Yes.
1: What kind of feedback did you see after the first one that you can remember in those well, magazines? I,
2: you know, I, uh, that I seen from the magazine, I I seen the event is what motivated me. To oh, see. you saw the event? I, I okay. saw the first event. And, uh, oh. I was impressed with what I, what I saw. And, you know, I, I was kind of like, it was kind of shocking how the crowd reacted when, uh, Shamrock had wrestled, had fought Pat Smith, no holds barred. He took him down, he hooked him, and you know injured him. And the fans just didn't get it; they booed him, you know. And, and we, I think people had this concept of Chuck Norris movies and Billy Jack movies, and everybody thought the striker, you know, had such a huge advantage. But you know, the, the Gracies Season Art proved that that point that you know, we, you need to know grappling if you're going to be a, a real fighter, you know, a real no holds barred fighter, or to be able to defend yourself. You know, so it was it was all new, but I saw that and I and I like that. That's that's what got me interested in in replying in the magazine. You know, or and one
3: of the reasons, um, Todd, that I was eager to recruit Bob Lucarelli is I figured this guy at six two and two forty five, with with big hands and and a knockout punch. And remember, I didn't get the knockout punch that I was looking for from Art Jimerson right. in the first event. And so, you know, if I had been doing, if I had done the individual matchups on UFC 2, another good match would have been Lucarelli, a little bit taller and, and, and virtually 60 pounds heavier than Hoist. And it seemed whether or not Hoist could have stood up to somebody who could really hit him with a punch that could take him out.
2: Right. And I think the other problem I would have presented Hoist is I had a wrestling background. and what yes. I noticed, Yeah. And what I noticed was no one knew how to stop the double leg takedown in number one. I mean, of course, yes, had Ken, but everyone else didn't know. And I, I knew that that would present a problem for Hoist trying to take me down, you know, because I knew how to sprawl. I knew how to defend, how to block the hips. I knew what to do, you know, cross face. If he came in, push on the head. I mean, there there's things I was going to do if he came in and used some dirty boxing. In the we got into the clinch. I mean, I, I think I had an advantage. I had some weight. I think it would have it would have been a good fight. Um, you know, and you know, especially after the years after the UFC, I went on uh, competed for Kip Collar in his first Naga and won the first Naga submission tournament. Competed in the IGC Pan Am Games. Um, went on to work with the great late Billy Robinson, the British lion uh, master catch wrestler. Um, so like I had learned more. And you look at you know the last time I go out there and grapple, I got the hooks in. I'm controlling the guy. You know, I got the rear naked choke. You know, it's kind of, it was kind of a hybrid choke cross base. And I, I, I tapped my opponent out. Had I known that, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, I had a bulldog choke, you know. But you, you learn, you know, and if it, it wasn't for the UFC, none of us would know. We'd all, you know what I mean? We'd all be stuck doing the same thing our whole life. But, uh, you know, it, it enlightened it. It enlightened us. It had to, you had to go on. You had to advance yourself. You had to evolve to continue. You know, now, Bob,
3: continue. did I approach you about coming back after UFC 2?
2: You, you did, but you know I was going through – you actually did, and um, I might have gotten in there because um, I know that – I think it was – was it I forget which one it was. It was the one Mark – I think Marco Huas was in, which – was that the one? That's which, UFC –
3: uh, that was UFC 7.
2: You, I think you might have contacted me for that one, but I'm not sure. I know my that friend – And that was Buffalo, New York, as I recall. Yeah, that was yeah. right – by. It was not too far from me. And, you know, my friend Larry Curran went in there. Curran would come to my gym and we'd spar. He's a good friend of mine, good guy, a fighting Larry fireman. Kiernan.
3: yes, a great kick fighter.
2: Yeah, I got some pictures of me and Larry. And uh, Larry, um, he ended up drawing uh, uh, Marco Huas, I remember, yes. you know. Yes. But Marco was great. He was, he was phenomenal, you know.
3: Marco's a guy that should be in the UFC Hall of Fame.
2: A- absolutely. I don't know how he's not. Yeah. You know?
3: The funny story on Marco Huas and Oleg Taktarov and Kimo Leopoldo is that Federico Lependa, who became a very good friend of mine, was in those early days copying the UFC formula, and he was taking some of my fighters, especially as they were winning, and bringing them over to Japan.
2: Right. Wow. Smart guy. So
3: I, so I wound up with, with, with not being able to hold on to Huas, who right. really was one of the first great cross-trained fighters he was a lute Livre guy. He had, the, he had the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he knew
2: how to kick. Right. He was leg-locking before it was popular. Lute yes. libre is the Brazilian catch, catch style. Yes. So it, he was amazing. Amazing conditioned. Uh, great, great fighter.
3: Well, you've got to remember that the, the, the Elio Gracie side of the family didn't like ankle and leg locks. I lie. know that. Because the, the, that to them was suburban. They used to call them suburban techniques. Right. On the other hand, the Carlson Gracie side with with their uh, with their connection to the late Holes Gracie, right. who had studied Sambo, who had right. studied catches, catch can wrestling, right. and he was very comfortable with the, with the with the leg and foot locks. So us really was a great cross trained fighter. Like I said, should be in the Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, it, you know what kind of make you know kind of puzzles me Art is you know Maeda Count Coma, he had um, a tremendous amount of catch matches. So you would yes. think he would have showed the Gracies all that stuff. You know. And they just may have disregarded it. I've actually seen, you know, Helio demonstrating leg locks. And so they knew they knew it. But it was just well, fun.
3: Well, the true story was when I was in the Gracie Academy and I had a blue belt at the same time as John McCarthy, I remember asking Horian about leg and, and, and ankle locks. And he put it down. He said, no, no. He said, my father is, you know, is adamant about that. The old man doesn't like that. So I think that there was, there was a, a mixed message going on there. I think that if you got Elio in a different situation, you'd wind up seeing those things. In the Gracie Academy, Horion had decided to be a purist about that. And we didn't grow up, we we didn't learn any of those early on. And I wound up studying for basically a year and a half with Horion and six months with Hoyler.
2: Wow. Yeah. So they stayed with the traditional sense.
3: Yes. And they didn't,
2: yeah, teach the leg locks.
3: Well, you got to remember that Holes Gracie is Carlos Gracie's son okay and he was the great innovator he was in a sense also hickson's teacher and right. when he died in a hang gliding accident in 1982 he was the great innovator in the family he was willing to study catch as catch can he was willing to study sambo and uh like i said when i was at the gracie academy in torrance it was the 36 lessons that the old man taught and that was the gospel right I never saw you us going
2: beyond that really i see yeah, and it, it was amazing that Holes had that open mind, and that's what made him so good, you know. Yes, it, it made him a mentor to Hickson. And absolutely, yeah. <sighs> what did you think when
1: you went to the first event and you saw some of the stuff that you saw, Robert? What did you think?
2: <clears throat> well, I th- I thought it was groundbreaking. I mean, I mean when I saw, it, I remember you know seeing uh, commercials for it. and I said, I I, I don't know, if, is this going to be a work? Is it going to be legit? <laughs> you know and uh you know at the time like I had seen something similar to it but it was a work UWF uh, had broadcasted uh, strong style Japan which was like a, a stiff style of fighting but it wasn't quite legit and uh I I just thought maybe it was just going to be something similar to that I didn't know but then when I saw you know Gerardo Cordo kick Taylor Tully's tooth and it went flying and I said wow you know <laughs> I couldn't believe it
1: yeah I think, Chad, you
2: can assume
3: that Bob was impressed by, uh, by Shamrock and Hoist in that first event. Because Absolutely. as Bob points out, the only guy who knew how to do the sprawl was Shamrock. Right. <laughs> Everybody else was lost about how to handle Hoist Gracie. You know, you had to, you know, you had to be willing to take that into account that he was going to take you down. And you had to understand enough about wrestling. That's why I felt that Lucarelli was great for UFC, too, because he had this, this cross-trained background already.
2: Right, and it, I, I appreciate that opportunity. You know, when thinking back, looking back at Gordo, Gordo in the finals in the first fight against Hoist, I think he bit Hoist's ear because I could see blood. He did. Wow.
3: He did, <laughs> yes. He did. And Hoist, Hoist is yelling at him afterwards, and Gordo was so, you know, so uh, you know very easygoing and, and they tossed that off. When I went backstage, the doctor was working on him with a, a tweezers pulling out pieces of Taylor Tully's. Uh, teeth from his foot. And Gerard was sitting there smoking a cigarette. And I would always <laughs> say to Gerard, I say, hey, everything okay? No problem, Art Davy. That's his favorite expression. Every time I get him on the phone, it's always, no problem, Art Davey.
2: <laughs> he was a hardcore guy, you know?
3: Oh, yeah. But <laughs> well, you got to remember, Bob, there were two gyms in Amsterdam. There was the Chakariki gym with Tom Haring.
2: Uh-huh.
3: And there was Johan Plas's Maguro gym. Okay. And Maguro Jim, both of them had uh, Muay Thai fighters who had fought over in Bangkok and Tokyo. And Jan Plas was rumored to be deeply connected to the Dutch criminal underground. He died in prison a few years ago. They don't know whether it was, and I see Todd nodding, because you know that story. Was it murder or was it suicide? Wow. And I called both guys up on the phone, and I was trying to get, you know, I was trying to get uh, Ernesto Hoost, uh, I was trying I to get him. you know somebody at that level from right. K-1, and I couldn't because they, they all wanted a huge appearance fee. But Jan Plas said to me, he said, on the street, if you own a brothel or a, a nightclub or you're a loan shark and you're trying to get somebody to pay you, he said, a guy that you can hire to do that, is Gerard Gordeaux.
2: <laughs> I believe it.
3: <laughs> and when I, when I first met Gordeaux, he told me the story that nobody wants to fight him on the street because of his reputation, so he used to walk around with a straight razor in the sock of his shoe and a thirty-two Mauser pistol in his back pocket. Jeez. <laughs> he was a legitimate tough guy. And yeah. I remember John Milius, the film director who met him, said that of all the people he ever met in and around the movie industry, including Randy Cobb,
2: Right, right. Wow, and really, Tex Cobb's a super tough guy. He's a...
3: Tough guy. Yeah. He said as much as Randall, tough Tex Cobb is a tough son of a b. bee, he
2: said, you know tough. And the guy who
3: really scares me. Right. Gerard Gordeaux.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's really saying something, you know. He had that demeanor nope. about him. I really clicked with him when I met him, you know, because he, he had come over, you know, and I clicked yeah. with Gerard. Yeah. Also, now a when the sun goes
1: down. When the draw goes down, Robert, and you get V, right. what went on then in your reaction or as you're looking at him?
2: Well, you know, I felt like I was kind of matched with a guy that was going to be a striker, too, you know, and uh, I, felt like, I felt pretty evenly there. I mean, you know, um, I, I thought I was going to do okay. You know, I really did. I, I was excited about it. And, uh, I, I, you know, like had it been on the street, I mean, I would have just unleashed, put, you know, punches on the ground. But I knew this was a tournament and I couldn't break my hand and um i went for a choke and uh you know had i just probably just ground and pounded or you know used some elbows on the ground it would have probably been a better strategy but again i was trying to preserve my hands and uh you know you're not going in there with the rage like you are on the street um so you know i I, you know I, i think the strategy kind of wasn't the wasn't didn't work out but you know i ran out of gas not being in shape you know that was also another issue but um I thought i had a good shot i think a lot of people thought he was the favorite i mean if you listen to brian kill and uh jim brown you know when he's coming out you know he was a talk of the party you know people just saying watch this guy you know he was just you know looked like he was carved out of stone i mean he just was in tremendous condition you know tremendous athlete great you know great background you know and um yeah i mean i was excited about it you know and i think I wish I had gotten another shot at him, you know, and I think I, I think I would beat him nine times out of ten, you know, giving the opportunity to fight him, you know, fight him again, you know, especially as I progressed as time went on. I don't know if he continued if he continued to learn anything about the ground or grappling, but I, I got more into that aspect of fighting. Yeah, so we, we I never. Had number, I was a had little of tough,
3: We had a number of tough strikers in that event. We had uh, Johnny Rhodes from right. Vegas, who was a good kickboxer. We had Pat Smith, who wound up in the finals with Hoist, and, uh, you know, it was the second time in Denver. Won the, he won the Sabaki Challenge
2: right? I remember in
3: 1993, back. and I felt that the three the three guys who could really punch was, was Bob Lucarelli, Johnny Rhodes, and Pat Smith.
2: Right. That, you know,
3: I, had, I had three good strikers in there.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, those guys were definitely the striking guys, you know, and, kind of feel familiar, but I felt like I could maybe offset him with the grappling because he wants to take a chance. You know, you're in there with a guy who has a, you know, even chance. You pretty much know his game as a striker, so why not t- try to take him down? If That was my mindset. Take him out of their element, you know. Are you, are you, yeah. you
3: uh, the, the fight was stopped on knees to the head, as I recall. That right? You're right.
2: Yeah, it was a yeah. knee and then he took the elbows to the back of the neck. Yeah. And, and I told uh-huh. I, the
1: neck. How hard were those elbows to the back of your neck? Uh,
2: you know, I'll tell you what. When I mean it was, I mean the knee really. I felt that, you know, when he hit me with that knee. But I told my corner, professional boxer Larry Wilkins, that uh, Art flew down for me. I told him, I said, you know, don't, don't stop this fight, uh, no matter what. I said, I'm, I'm going in there and putting it all on the line. I mean, I was, you know, prepared to, to die that day. I was going in there, you know, and uh, it everything I got. And what happened was uh you know Horian had come over to Larry and, and told him throw that towel you know because i wasn 't going to come back and i 'm glad Horian told him to do that because and Larry was afraid Larry was afraid that I was going to do something I would never do anything thing like that, but he was upset. he thought I was going to be upset with him but i I remember that uh, and uh you know i kind of woke up after that i just like like after that fight i i I just i really felt like i was in gear and i said i wish i you know i just wish i could get another shot in there that's what i was thinking after that fight but we went out and had a party after that was great yes Uh, western theme party you remember that art yes uh, we had a blast in those days Bob, bob
3: you were at a time when it was a great tradition to have that post fight party and i always thought that that showed the great sportsmanship uh, there was no trash talking at that point. Everybody was brothers. They were all X-15 pilots that they had taken a risk. And you Thank remember you. until UFC Four, when somebody, you know, when when uh, when Mel Bowen shows up with gloves, you're oh, looking yeah. at an era when everybody fought with bare with bare
2: knuckles. Mm-hmm. You're right. It, it was an era. It was a, you know an era of bare knuckles. And was it Sam Salomon that did that rap? Got a little yes. on our hands. Didn't he work with Leon Spinks and some other big time fighters? Well, you
3: gotta remember, you gotta remember the story on that is that I had gone to Emmanuel Stewart in in uh, at the at Cronk gym in Detroit trying to get heavyweight boxers. And he joked with me. He said, He said, You want to get a, a real heavyweight to fight those guys in karate pajamas? He said, Whatever you're drinking and smoking, if you come to visit me, bring some with you. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't, I got, I got nowhere with him. So I wound up calling the the, the Joe Frazier's gym in Philadelphia. And that's where I got Leon Tabs and the great Sam Solomon. You got to remember that Sam Solomon was in Sonny Liston's corner when he lost wow. to Cassius Clay in Miami <laughs> Beach.
2: Wow. I didn't know. the that.
3: heavyweight championship. So you had a guy wrapping your hands, Bob. And you, as, as a guy who understands boxing, you had one of the all time great uh, corner men in boxing wow. history, the late great Sam Solomon.
2: Wow, that's amazing. You know, Art Davey took me to that Miami Beach Convention Center where that fight took place. The, the fight, the first fight with Cassius yes. Clay and uh, Chris, Chris Dundee was there. Yeah. 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 Chris is a good guy. Yeah.
1: You know, that second event, you, you know how you were talking about Horion came to stop the fight. Later on, we had Pat Smith and Scott Morris, which yes. to this day might be the scariest fight the UFC's ever had.
3: Todd, I was in the truck. With yeah. the director, Mark Lucas. And with that fight, for the first time, we had BMG there. The real investor in the UFC was Bertelsmann's Music Group. A lot of people don't know that. They were the ones funding Semaphore that. Entertainment. They did not come to the first show. So they're at the second show from Frankfurt, Germany. And remember, BMG at one time has had Michael Jackson, Madonna. You know, in, in the music business, they've had everybody. And they were at that time with the largest privately held entertainment company on the planet Earth. When they were watching that Scott Morris, Pat Smith fight with 16 or 17 elbows. And poor Scott Morris was cut above and below both eyes. He's bleeding everywhere. I'm looking at the BMG guys and they're all doing a face palm. They're all hiding behind their hands. Yeah. And believe me, six or eight months later, they basically pulled out. They wow. never really got behind this. It was too brutal, and that's. It's funny you should mention that, Todd, because that fight was 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 uh, uh, was a, was a watershed event, and a lot of people who maybe were thinking about going into the UFC maybe after that decided that they were going to back off and do something else for a living. Right. And the BMG people were horrified. Uh, and remember that brought on the Senator McCain's of this world. Uh, you know, by, by the time that we were in Charlotte for UFC 3, you've got the mayor, you know, trying to make a last-minute decision about keeping this event out of town. By the time that we went to Detroit, it becomes – we couldn't fight with bare knuckles. And I was I, – by the way, they were still looking for me after Detroit. There was a warrant out for my arrest. <laughs> I had gone back to California. And the UFC doesn't go back to Michigan for 17 years. That's the era it was. It's crazy.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, that fight
3: fight happened
1: so fast. Yes. That fight happened so fast. Really, it looked like Pat was the one who stopped it because he just got up off of him.
3: Well, I think – I remember talking to Pat afterwards. Pat was, you know, was very upset about UFC 1. He was supposed to win that in his mind. He had won the Sabaki Challenge to get beaten by with an ankle hook from, from Ken Shamrock, who he thought was just a pretty boy in the red Speedos. <laughs> he, there, there were two unhappy people, the uh, three unhappy people at the UFC 1 post-fight party. Ken Shamrock, who was stunned that he lost to hoist, Pat Smith, that he'd lost to Shamrock. And Hicks and Gracie was being beaten up by his wife that Horry and Gracie had put hoist in and kept Hickson, the family champion, from being in this event.
2: Do you regret not having Hickson in there?
3: Well, I wanted Hickson. I couldn't, I couldn't get Horian to do that. They were not getting along from a business standpoint. He had actually fired Hickson, and, and Hoyce hired Hickson as a trainer. But Pat Smith was motivated for UFC 2, to get back to, to Todd's point, is that he knew he was going to win UFC 2. He said to me, he said, you watch me now. He said, I got jobbed in a way the last time. He said, that ain't going to happen again. He was so wired to win that night that the disappointment was his, his performance against Hoist. But I, I saw that he, in a sense, did stop the beating that he was giving Scott Morris. You're right about that, Todd. He, I think, himself decided there's no way this guy can get up.
2: Right, right.
3: That's what I remember. It's funny you remember that.
1: Yeah, I, th- I thought he could have killed Morris That he wanted to.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> he wanted he wanted to get on to the fourth round. He wanted to get on the hoist. And you remember that uh, that was the quarterfinals. Uh and in that next event, uh he wound up uh, beating Johnny Rhodes with a submission.
2: Yeah, guillotine. T- the
3: two Las Vegas kickboxers.
2: Wasn't it a right. guillotine that he caught him with Art? Yeah. Standing. Standing so it was,
3: that was a standing guillotine, I believe he caught him with. A yeah. guillotine choke, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mark.
2: Pat picked up some grappling in that one, then you know.
3: Pat was so motivated to win that, and I got to tell you that he figured, look, I am the Denver favorite. This is my town. It's 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 my destiny to be the Ultimate Fighting Championship in Denver.
2: Right, it was his town. So yeah, he was the hometown boy for sure. Yeah. Mammoth Garden Arena, right? Yes.
3: As you remember, the problem we had with Mammoth was that it was, it was small. We 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 were standing room only. We had filled it up. It was SRO, standing room only. But you remember that we had you fighters in a hotel, in a, uh, in a, uh, hotel, in a yeah, across the street. We yeah, had a, a motel, that. and yeah. the motel had a lot of crack business and whore and, and, <laughs> and prostitutes going on, <laughs> you know. And it wasn't as, as fancy as as as, as, as the Marriott screened. you stayed in. Right. And you know, but but I got to tell you something. We did a great job of pipe and draping the the dressing area, and I had security guards every you know going on all the time, right. But, But any of you pioneers from that era where you saw a world that is now gone, you know, that world was unbelievable, really.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was. You I got a question for you, Art. You know, number one, I heard that when um, Ken Shamrock tapped out the hoist, that hoist actually used his gi to choke him out. Is that true?
3: Well, the the, the gi is definitely involved, and and Shamrock never got over that. Remember that – in the first UFC fighter meeting, which almost de- degenerated into a brawl, at right. one point, Art Jimerson and, and Zane Fraser arguing that why can't they wrap their knuckles? And Horion, who at that point we, were, we had given him the title of the International Fight, uh, Fighting Championship Commissioner, was basically changing the rules at the last minute. And Fraser and Jimerson were, were furious. And they're standing up and arguing. Who Stands up behind them is Hicks and Gracie. Wow, and at that point, I thought we're gonna have a brawl, people are going to the hospital, people are going to jail, and there's no event tomorrow night, right? So, so one of the things that Shamrock was protesting that night in a fighter meeting, why can't he wear the shin guards that he wore in, in Pank, Pank Race,
2: Pank, right. in Japan, yeah.
3: And 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 Hoist is gonna wear the gi. Uh, why doesn't Hoist come in without the gi top, so, right? He never got over the fact that Hoist was able to reach around and use the gi. That was something all of us had practiced in the Gracie Academy. I was familiar with that.
2: Sure. But you know, I couldn't see it from the standpoint of the camera. Uh, you right. know, the camera showed, you couldn't tell there was a gi involved. So I never found out till years later. So that was interesting. That's a very
3: good question. By yeah. the way, uh, uh, one of the things that we did for the first show and you were, you were part of that for the second show is that Mike, Mark Lucas, our director, you know, wanted to do a jib with an overhead camera. And Bob Myrowitz at Semaphore said, why are we spending money on an overhead camera? And Lucas said, until you can show what's happening on the ground to the fans in the arena watching it up on a jumbotron or the fans at home on pay-per-view, we need that overhead. And thank God we went to that. It's now, you know, standard standard operating procedure. But it wasn't uh, – we, we did it on the first event, but Bob didn't want to pay for it.
2: Right you know, is it true you were going to put alligators around the ring and electric fence and all that? Well,
3: I I talk about that in my book, Is This Legal?, that in the beginning, you know, as you know, Bob, we were making this stuff up as we went along. (laughs) You guys were the pioneers. (laughs) So in the beginning, if there were any idea we could come up with, we could consider it. And that was two ideas I had. Uh, There was a a, a medical doctor, a a, a cardiologist, who was a student at the Gracie Academy, and he was in the office when I brought it up to Horion about doing – a, a, a like a, a a wushu mat, thirty or forty feet across. Only we'd have a copper plate in the outer reaches, like a ring, and we'd we'd wire it, and we'd electrify it. And the cardiologist <laughs> turned to me, he said, "Do you know what the expression ventricular fibrillation means?" And I didn't. He said, "A guy lands on there with a sweaty chest. You're going to give him a heart attack." <laughs> That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> And Horian laughed at my idea about a moat. I said, you know, we don't have to fill it up with sharks. We'll fill it up with, you know, like piranha. And we'll right. feed them well so they'd be as tame as, as catfish. <laughs> you, Bob, you, you know, the worst idea I had, and Horion vetoed it, I was thinking maybe we do this thing semi-nude. And right. we do like some sort of a makawashi sumo type of, you know, lower body covering. Right. And Horian said to me, there ain't nobody in my family that's going to have that thing up as, up as crack. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> so that was the end of that idea. So yeah, Bob, in those early days, that's a true story. We were bringing up a lot of stuff. And, and all of that stuff got thrown out. Right. The true story is we, Semaphore hired two set designers from Hollywood, Jason Cussin and, uh, and um, uh, Greg Harrison. And They're the guys who came up with five different designs, and the one that we all liked and was in love with was the octagon,
2: right? Yeah, that was great, it was a great idea, you know. Yeah, I, you one time was kind of interesting when uh Keith Hackney, uh, Emmanuel Yarbrough fight. You remember yes. that? He got driven UFC right through three. the door. i yeah. never seen anything like that before, you know.
3: Well, you know, there's two great stories about the octagon, Mark, uh, Mark, uh, Pilot, Michael Pilot, are line producer was going to throw the octagon away at the end of the first event and bob and i had approved of a budget item of twenty eight thousand dollars to build the octagon for ufc one okay i wound up having a storage facility in denver so at the last minute i showed up with the key and gave it to pilot and said you know we're going to store that he said well it's a set we'll build it for the next one and bob who you know who wasn't at ufc one he was still at home in long island watching this on, on on tv right he was glad that i saved the octagon because you know we would have yeah. to redo it what Came happened was shirt. though after ufc3 we wound up rebuilding the octagon so it was more transportable it could be folded up like an origami easy i and see. put in a truck and and making the gate stronger because 200 pound keith hackney and 600 pound emmanuel Yarborough bust through that gate
2: yeah <laughs> i remember that day yeah I and what and so the the, uh, the original octagon is in some scrapyard somewhere, huh? Yeah, right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to that Pat Smith Scott Morris fight for a second, because Pat saws through him. What's the vibe backstage like? I mean, because when you're watching the event, like I was, I was like, "Holy crap!" You know, like that guy. Yeah. That guy was as close as it could get to getting killed in there. Were the guys backstage thinking? I mean, did you notice anything or there had to be some sort of reaction among the other fighters like, whoa, you know, like. You
3: know, what do you
2: think, Bob? You know, I, I was so busy warming up and so focused on what was going to happen with me. I was, not you know, I would peek out and see what was going on from, from time to time. But, you know, a lot of it, you know what I mean? I was just concerned about at the time was what was going to happen, you know, in my fight, in my match, you know, and, uh, you know, like I stuck around, you know, for after after the fight, but it was just. You're so focused on what you're doing, and, and you're behind that curtain, and uh, you know, it, it, you know, you know what's going down out there is pretty scary. You know, when people are getting hurt like that, but you know, you. Know, Bob,
3: you Bob, did you, you watch? Know. Did you watch some of those fights backstage, up on up on on a, on a monitor that we had in the dressing area?
2: A, l- a little bit, yeah. I yeah,
3: did. you know that Scott Morris bout only went thirty seconds.
2: I remember that. Yeah,
3: it only lasted thirty seconds. So you're right, Todd. That. He actually probably backed off at the end because he didn't need to hit him anymore. But that thing was was a buzzsaw. In thirty seconds, he had destroyed him, cut him up terribly. Right. Terribly.
2: And and you know I'm sure Scott Morris was a tough guy, you know, and yes. uh, you know to get in there his training. It was ninjitsu, I believe, that you know he was doing. Yes. Which combined some elements of grappling, takedowns, yep. and striking, and uh, you know, and he and he won his first fight against uh, Sean Doggerty, right? Uh. Yeah. Think about
3: that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was.
1: It was Dougherty. Yep. In
3: the. Yeah, and, uh, yeah it was Sean Dougherty. That's right. And it was a submission. It was a guillotine choke.
2: Right. Yeah.
3: Right. That's right.
2: Yeah. And I know Sean went on to do some catch wrestling and grappling yes. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and so did Dilucca, uh Jason Delucia went down with with Ken as well. Remember well, that? Well, you remember that Jason Delucia who had gone out to California
3: to challenge Steven Seagal and could never get in to see him. I remember that. So he wound up Todd over at the Gracie Academy. And I think mm-hmm. they put him up against either, I think it was Hoyler or it was uh, one of the Brown belts and Horian and I were impressed with him. And I wound right. up putting him in as an alternate for UFC one up against, uh, um, uh, a local kickboxer. Yeah. yeah. No, um,
2: Guy Mesner was a guy. Mezner? No, not guy no. It wasn't
3: Guy Metzger. Metzger. It wasn't Guy Metzger. And he he was from uh, he was from Karen uh, uh, Karen Allen, the local kickboxer who uh, promoter who was uh, sponsored by Coors Beer, right? And uh, and I'll think of his name in a minute because I still hear from him at Christmas time. But uh, but we were very impressed with with uh, Jason Delucia, and Delucia was really hoping that he was going to get. You know, uh, Hoist Gracie at one point he beats, he got Scott Baker in that first round, and uh, you know, uh, uh, so you know, he was really hoping that he was going to be, you know, going on to fight Hoist. And when he met Hoist in the semifinals and got beaten in a minute, you know, but he had been beaten back in the Gracie Academy by, but you know, he was, he was already involved with the, with the Lions Den, and he went over and did Pank Grace You got to remember that, that the last guy to get into UFC one on the airplane was Ken Shamrock. He was doing a race event that weekend. Right. In Fukuoka. Yeah. And as you know, and you tell, in fact, you, you, the one we should be asking about this, Bob, what was your impression of Pancrace in those early days when you looked at it? What, how did you analyze what that was as a work or a shoot or a, a what? What did you think?
2: You know, I think it was a combination of both. I think that there was some, some shoots and some works in there, you know, yes. and, very, very, very stiff, you know. And I know the training because the training you go through. I mean, Robinson put us through it. You've got to do like five hundred Hindu squats, fifty squats a minute, five hundred ten yeah. minutes. You know, five hundred to a thousand Hindu squats, two hundred fifty Hindu push-ups. We really two hundred fifty incline sit-ups, climb stairs for thirty minutes, and run six miles before we even grab yeah. it. I mean, it. It was brutal. The condition, A yeah, tough regimen, right. yeah, very tough. Yes. And I. And on the other but, hand,
3: on the other hand, you got it right. It was a stiff. Part work, part shoot. Because, you know, when, when Shamrock gets into town, the first thing he says to me, he says, is this really a shoot or is this a work? Right. I said, we've been over this already on the phone. He said, well, you got a guy in this event who's going to be wearing karate pajamas who's never had a pro fight. <laughs> he was talking about
2: Hoist, Hoist Gracie. Hoist, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I
1: think the first time I saw Pancrase, I think they y'all might have done uh, something after a pay-per-view where Ken – posted something talking about Pancrase. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. Yeah, that's the first time I had saw Pancrase. I, I had no concept in my head of work, shoot. I just thought I was watching guys who were wearing, you know, the, the boots. I well, thought you know, it was pretty cool.
3: You know, you know Todd, uh, see, Bob asks the right questions. And Bob, with his background both in grappling and, and in boxing, could, could, could look at this and say, is this a shoot or a work? A lot of my guys, let's say if you owned a karate school, the term work or shoot was meaningless to them. They weren't pro fighters. They didn't have that experience. Shamrock, who was doing Pancrase that weekend, November the eighth, I believe, or seventh, in Fukuoka, you know, he was doing, and that was a work that weekend. I think I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember who it was up against, and you know, it was either Fujiwara or one, one of the very big guys in Pancrase. But uh, Delucia went over and had a long career in Pancrase and talked about how physically tough it was because the training was, was monstrous.
2: Yeah, you, brutal. Know,
3: you know, 250 uh, uh, squats or deep, you know, or, or push-ups, and unbelievable. Right. And then the timing and then running six miles. It was, it was a rough regimen. Those guys were all in incredible shape. And you know who came out of that and also belongs in the Hall of Fame is Frank Shamrock.
2: Right. Definitely, oh, for sure. Definitely
3: Undefeated for- in the octagon. And also one of the great cross-trained guys, one of the best guys I ever did business with. I could shake hands with him, and when it, once, once we shook hands, it was a deal. Great guy.
1: Yeah, hey. I, to me, Frank Shamrock was like, the first time we ever saw the best fighter ever in this kind of thing was him. Now, there's been other guys after, but he was the first best guy ever, so to speak.
3: Well, Todd, I had actually written an article once for, I think, Gladiator or Grappling Magazine, Todd Hester's Magazine, in which I used a formula that Ring Magazine had used in raiding boxers, heavyweight boxers over the years. And it was a a whole formula. And it was about punches. It was about defense. It was about charisma. It was a a whole bunch of things. And I raided fighters. And the guy who came up to the top of my listing was, was Frank Shamrock. Yeah, and that was the article I wrote, and, and and I and I, everyone who'd won a UFC was was part of that group, and guys who were placed high, the Remco Pardus were in that list. But the guy I picked was Frank Shamrock, based on this formula. He was uh an incredible athlete, an incredible competitor, and uh, a great interview.
1: Yeah, and I think that fight he had with Tito, I mean the the second Hoist Ken fight was a big fight, no doubt. But I think that fight he had with Tito was kind of like a, like a a major fight at that time, you know. Yes. Yes. Big, big fight at yes. that time. You bet. You and bet you. I remember there was one bar on the whole island of Oahu that showed the UFC at that time, and all the guys that were kind of in the community were there, like TJ Thompson from Super Brawl, Egan Inouye, a oh, lot yeah. of the fighters and stuff. And when we watched that fight, there was you could tell that people were just like, "This guy's." He's on another level, you know. Yes. <laughs> and there was that feeling. We just saw, like, the greatest fighter ever just now, you know.
3: I think – didn't I match him up against the Olympic gold medalist Kevin Jackson at one point in USA, yeah. Japan? Right. Oh, yeah, I
2: yeah. mean, you know. And he, he broke his arm or something. Armbarred yeah. him, right?
3: Yeah. 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 Shamrock, yeah. Frank Shamrock, incredible athlete, just incredible. Yeah. And like I said, uh, he was the prototype of what came later – if you want to look at, uh, you know, the, the GSPs of this world and, and the John Jones of this world. Well, uh, Ken, um, uh, John McCarthy has a great expression. He says, Hoist Gracie was UFC 1.0. He said, Mark Coleman was UFC 2.0 because he introduced ground and pound. And that really changed the sport at that point. He said, later you can look at GSP and you can look at John Jones. He said, but when I look at the first two, I think about Hoist being UFC 1.0 and Mark Coleman being UFC 2.0. Remember that when I brought in Severin, who led me to Coleman, who led me to Mark Kerr, who led me to Randy Couture, by that time, the Gracies were gone. You know, by UFC 5, Horian knew that it wasn't just the issues with politics. That basically, Koist wouldn't come back to the UFC for 11 years. And right. that's what happened.
2: <clears throat> yeah. The
3: wrestlers changed the game. Sure. The wrestlers changed the game. Mark Coleman changed. Uh, McCarthy told me of all the guys he ever got on the mat and rolled with, you know, during a round, that, you know, an event, he said the guy that scared him because he was so strong was Coleman. Wow. He said Coleman was freaky.
2: Well, you, you know what it is, too, though? But the, the wrestlers, you know, originally, like, when Severin got in there with Hoist, he get triangled, but they weren't familiar with the submission. So the jiu-jitsu right. kind of brought their game up, you know? Absolutely. But the, yeah, the early Absolutely. wrestlers couldn't get in there with the with the jiu-jitsu guys. Right. It was later on when they when they got smart to everything, you know? Yes. They progressed. Well, I remember when Don Fry too.
1: fought Batechi? Remember when Don Fry fought Omri Batechi? You know, Batechi was a champion jiu-jitsu guy. And Freud just pummeled him.
3: I'm a but you're right about that. Freud just destroyed him. Yes, it was a know, shocking. You know, to th-
1: hardcore people.
3: Yeah, you know, Todd, what happened? And it started with, uh, and Bob was there. it Started with UFC two. The fighters now, you know, many of them were still coming in from the world of, you know, owning a karate school in Bemidji, Minnesota. But the, the fighters were starting to get smart. They were starting to cross train. I remember the chemo. After UFC three showed up at the Gracie Academy wanting lessons, and Horian wouldn't take him. Horian went to him, he said, "Well, he's the enemy." I said, "He's not the enemy. He's paying you the supreme compliment that he wants to learn Brazilian right, jiu-jitsu." Exactly, tennis.
2: exactly. But
3: the guys all started to cross train, and they saw what happened with Severin as a wrestler. The wrestlers, by like you said, by the time Fry meets Amari Batech, you know, they were all the game had got. The game started to elevate starting in UFC two. All the smart guys started to cross train all the smart guys started to say wait a minute this is what the game is now i've right. got to i've got to fill in the gaps here if i have a gap i need to do something about it the, the the fighters changed the sport
2: as much or more than the fans did absolutely absolutely yeah it was just a growing evolution you know and the smart ones stayed in there and they grew and they and they cross trained and they they caught yep. on and and they you know they learned what to what worked and you know that's what we have today You know, but it was all the guys that bled in the beginning that made it this great sport that it is is today, you know.
3: The only question I've got, Bob, is why did you want me to see if I had Stevie Nicks' phone number?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to surprise my my wife, you know. Yeah, you you,
3: you texted me the other day, and I hadn't heard from you in a few years. (laughs) I get this, uh, Todd, I get this, this thing. He wants to know if I've got the contact information for Stevie Nicks. And, you know, I'm getting to be so old, I said, Stevie Nicks was she with Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> I had to think about it.
1: <laughs> heart, heart, right? Wasn't she one of
2: the people at Heart? No, she wasn't at Heart. No, she, she was in Mac. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: hey, that, that's how old I am, Todd. I wasn't sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I I remember. that. I thought she was one of the people in Heart, but
2: Heart. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Did, did did he have her number <laughs> no,
2: no you know what i no. finally got i finally got through to stevie's banner drives I, you know and uh my wife told me you know you, you spend money on stevie nicks i'm going to take a life insurance policy on you and then <laughs> collect the money and enjoy stevie nicks you'll be history <laughs> she why did, why did history you think stories. art
1: would have her contact information yeah, you
2: know art knows everybody you know art's art's a celebrity he's the man you know <laughs> <Stop> <laughs> thank you bob <laughs> I got to tell
3: you, I got to tell you that I do have to run. I've got a group calling me and I'm going to
1: do a Oh, you cut out, Art. You cut Your out, voices. Art. We can't hear you, Art. I don't know what happened. They cut you off. I think the movie group cut you off when you started to talk.
2: I want to know okay, if I'd be willing to be interviewed. Art, thank you so much for coming on. Well, we got you back now. What, what were you going to say?
3: Well, I did. Somebody's just trying to call. I think that's my eleven o'clock call. It's some oh, producer okay. who's trying to do a documentary on Art Jimerson, but it's going to be like a three-part for uh, thirty for thirty. You know, Art's early life, his boxing, and then the 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 one-glove episode in the UFC.
1: Oh, that's so be wanna, cool.
3: They want to do a couple of minute interview with me at some point. And I got to tell you, my heart goes out to to the Bob Lucarellis of this world, the early pioneers, because it was these guys who made my life and Thank my you. job easier. I, Thank whatever you. credit I get, is because I was able to find guys like Bob Lucarelli. Thank
2: you, Art. Thank you for the opportunity.
3: It was a pleasure.
2: My pleasure, Art. Thank you. I'll see you guys later. We'll see Art. Take care. Ciao. Um, Ciao. Rob,
1: Robert, since we're kind of closing up, uh, <clears throat> is there anything you kind of want to leave the interview on here before, before we uh, shut it down?
2: I mean, we, you know, we covered a lot of, a lot of material, maybe, you know, save it for another show sometime. I, I know we're running no, down I think on
1: time. Do important people that are listening to this that maybe you want to leave them with if
2: there's something? Um, you know, they could, they could follow a lot of my, my fights on YouTube. You know, if you just, if you just punch in Robert Lucarelli, UFC fighter, there's, you know, material on me there. Um, you know, if they, they want to, you know, send me like a contact information, like for an autograph or something they could reach me at, um, PO Box five nine seven East Ellij, E L L I J Y Georgia three zero five three nine. If anybody, you know, wants an autograph or anything like that, so, you know, you know, today, like I've had, uh, you know, reconstructive surgeries. Like I said, five reconstructive surgeries. I've had a total um, hip, hip replacement, uh, two back fusion, a neck fusion, and my shoulders held together, you know, by a pin. I don't get on the mat, but. Uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff with uh, Tommy Joe Moore, um, Bartitsu, and, and Defendo, like combative stuff. You know, I, I've added in heat like the old Bartitsus, like the old bare knuckle boxing techniques. I find interesting to add into my arsenal. So I still, I still do some training um, with that, and um, you know, just you know, like uh, I'm happy the opportunities you know people have given me. Marcio Sim of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, Billy Scott and Gene Lydic, from um, you know the Billy Robinson you know, academy and gym that he had there. Those those guys were always great to me with their information. Matt Fury, of course, uh, with his Cycle Cybernetics and uh, Great Gamma, of course, he had transformed me, transformed me. You could see me in his book, uh, Combat Abs, where I had lost 150 pounds in 10 months, totally transformed myself uh, with Matt. So I just want to give a shout out to some of these people. You know, of course, it's great. Art Davy, you know, great promoter. Um, you know, again, you know, like today's, that We're not even mentioned, you know, so I'm, I'm happy that you had given me this opportunity to, to talk about it and, you know, some of the fallen fighters from the last 25 years, you know, um, my heart goes out, you know, to Paul Varlins, uh, Randleman, Kevin Rozier, those those guys are all great fighters.
1: Yeah, the those guys are all missed for sure.
2: Yeah.
1: It would have been great to talk with those guys as well. Absol-
2: absolutely. Absolutely. And the fans, you know, I got to thank the fans for hanging in there because this was banned everywhere, you know. And, you know, if it wasn't for the fans, we'd have nothing. Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate you taking the time. You know, it was awesome talking to both of you and Art. And, uh, Absolutely awesome. Love to have Thanks. you again sometime maybe with another uh, veteran.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Todd. I
1: appreciate it. It was great talking to you and great meeting with you and uh, keeping in touch.
2: We will. We'll stay in touch.
1: Appreciate it. Thank Take you. Care. Pleasure
2: mine. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: All right. So if you want to follow Robert Lucarelli, you can follow him at Lucarelli, which is L-U-C-A-R-E-L-L-I, Robert. And if you want to follow Art Davey, his uh, Instagram is UFC Creator. And as always, you can follow me at Instagram at... Uh, The underscore Todd underscore Atkins underscore show. And uh, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is uh, Todd Atkins Show. And as always, I appreciate the support and uh, stay tuned for more episodes to come. Many more. Thank you and take care.